Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to the instrumental Captain Soul, recorded by The Birds and written by David Crosby, Roger McGuinn, Michael Clark, and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Chris Hillman. The Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and multiple Grammy nominee joins us later in the show to talk about his songwriting with The Birds, The Flying Burrito Brothers, The Desert Rose Band, and much more. Part one. So, completely unrelated to our upcoming conversation with Chris Hillman, uh, I think you've seen it. There's a new Motley Crue movie on Netflix. Yes, I watched it uh, just the other night. You know, it's just sad that it came out right after the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like it's, it's it's chance. It's so great. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, what a marvel! Uh, what what did you think of the movie? Uh, I did not think it was good. Uh, um, but you watched the whole thing. Well, I watched the whole thing, but also I um, was supposed to be getting all my stuff together to do my taxes that night. Uh, so I'm I would have watched all of anything. <laughs> I was in like yeah. big time procrastination mode, but. Uh, yeah, I, I watched the whole thing and, um, you, did you bail out before it was over? I, I did, but I, I do that on a lot of things. It so. didn't get better. Yeah. If you're wondering. I, I bailed out on uh, Schindler's List actually. Really? Yeah. Schindler's that, that, List was a much better film than the Motley Crue. Different uh, reasons. Opinion. Schindler's List, I was like legitimately upset right. by what was going right. on and like, yeah. yeah it, well, so. I was kind of upset at this one too, <laughs> for different reasons. Well, the, you know, I, I watched it and I, my wife and I were watching it and both of us are you know, fans of the band, I, I, you know, lowercase f fans, not like <laughs> giant fans, but yeah. fans of Motley Crue. And I kind of looked at it, I said, well, you know, this is sort of appropriate because it's a silly movie about a band that was at times silly. Always silly. Yeah. Um, a cartoonish band. But the, you know, the, the problem I have with it is sort of like, I, and I, I pulled the camera back on my own life. I kind of felt the same way about the Queen movie. And I know that, like, it, listen, man, that guy's performance as Freddie Mercury was awesome. Right. Like, he he embodied him. Right. And those live scenes were, were amazing. But I always tell people, you know, what I didn't like about the movie was that most of it felt like like an episode of Saved by the Bell where they had a band. I don't know if you remember the Zack Attack. <laughs> I did not. I did not Saved ever watch that show, amazingly, which is a whole other topic. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I just the, the the way they handled themselves in rehearsal and 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 the way the band would sort of communicate with each other, it felt very TV ish, hmm. Boy Meets World ish, right? And I think I kind of went in wanting something a little bit more like Ray, or right. Walk the Line, right? Yeah, well, see, I, I kind of liked Bohemian Rhapsody because to me it was fun. And I think The Dirt, which is the Motley Crue movie, was trying to be fun. Right. But, but those guys' behavior was so juvenile and like self-absorbed <laughs> right. and frankly like a menace to society that it's sort of hard at this age to to like take that in and be like, yeah, that was all in good right. fun. Like, no, I think some like, well, people did get hurt, you know? Right. Like well, it, there was some bad things right. that happened. Drummer for um, Hanoi Rocks. Yeah. Killed in a car wreck. Yeah. And yeah. And, and just the... Uh, it was based on the book, The Dirt, which right. was actually when that book came out, I really um, enjoyed it in a guilty pleasure kind of way. I mean, it's the most just kind of rock and roll debaucherous, you right. know, and and as a it kind of broke ground as a as a band autobiography. Right. Um, but I don't know that if I read it now that I would react to it in the same way. It's like I think we're just well, you're living, an older man now. I'm an older man now and we're living yeah. in different times. And, yeah. uh, you know, Paul, I've, I'm woke now. <laughs> um, you know, I will say this to anyone who's considering watching the Motley Crue movie. Uh, don't watch it in front of the kids or if there's an opportunity for the kids to enter the room or even the home. Maybe maybe only watch it if your children have been sent away for some period of time. And I would say no matter what the age of your children are, if they are in their 30s, don't watch this in front of them. Wait till it's, your kids are, are, are have at least gone to college yeah. and they're out of the house. 
it is not suitable for <laughs> any children or no. people who know children. No. It, uh, I think if you're a big Motley, like a big Motley Crew fan, capital F, then you'll probably enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly not going to make any new fans of the band by any means. So I'm not really probably sure not. who it's for. Right. But um, well, apparently it's for you. Well, it was more fun than doing the taxes. Right. I will say that with with the way uh, that movie hit me, and you know, I didn't really, I wasn't disappointed by the Motley Crue movie because I had zero expectations. Right. The Queen movie, I will say that I was disappointed by, mm-hmm. and it's made me very apprehensive about this Elton John movie that's coming. Right. Because you're a uh, big Elton John fan. I'm a big uh, capital F. Yeah. Big Elton John fan, and I think I'm gonna have to just sort of train my expectations as if I was watching one of those. Remember VH1 did the movies about like the temptations right i mean like just <laughs> bad wigs that's your bar that kind of, that's, that, that's going to be my bar for the elton movie and if it's yeah. any better than that which i think it probably will be the preview looks good than that, the preview looks good yeah it's just you know how it is if you're yeah. too connected to something yeah, so you're too close to it yeah 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 um there was a movie that came out a few years ago called uh, grand theft parsons that huh. starred uh, johnny knoxville from jackass as the manager of grand parsons hmm. um who we will be talking about with with Chris? I love the fact that you just this, tied this in. in you like yeah. that? Well done. Because you at the beginning you said that we're going to talk about something that has nothing to do, yeah. and I took that as a personal challenge. I'll find a way. <laughs> I'll find a way. I like the fact that you thought of it while you were saying things. Yeah, like I'm you like, multitasked. Yeah, yeah. I have a dual core processor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this movie called uh, Grand Theft Parsons about how Grand Parsons' uh, body was stolen and burned mm. at his wishes. That's what he wanted to happen after he died. And so Johnny Knoxville plays his manager who does this, and he winds up there wasn't like a law against stealing a dead body. Mm. Um, so he like I think got charged for stealing the coffin or something like that. Anyway, that was a really like I don't even remember if I liked it or not because it's been several years since I watched it. But if you ever thought how obscure a music movie will they make, that might be the that 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 might be uh, exhibit A. Um, But it sort of speaks to the degree to which Graham Parsons has become this mythologized cult figure in American music. Um, And you know, I gotta say, and I don't think Chris Hillman is the type of guy that would that would say this himself. um, But I will join the chorus of some others who have said it that. You know, Graham Parsons gets the glory, but Graham and Chris were were doing this thing together, yeah. and I think that Chris Hillman deserves at least as much credit as Graham Parsons for, sure. for being the the innovator of California country rock, yeah. um, bringing country music and rock music together at a time when you know that wasn't really done. Now we just take it for granted. It's yep. it's you know everybody just accepts it. But Chris Hillman was a pioneer, and so yep. this was one of those interviews that for me, uh, I was. Um, you know, I, I, I like all the interviews that we do, but some of them have a special kind of yeah. resonance. Cause I'm a big fan of that music, a big fan of the Flying Bredo Brothers and the Birds. And so to me, Chris Hillman is, uh, you know, he, he looms large. And yep. so it was very cool to have the opportunity to talk. Well, you to know, him. And, and in terms of looking at, at, you know, what Chris's contributions were and, and, and where he you know sort of ranks in that whole story, I think all the work that he did since the Breeder Brothers mm-hmm. makes, you know, the most amazing case for that. With the yeah, work he yeah. did uh, solo, the Desert Rose Band, the stuff he did with Stephen Stills. I right. mean, just like on and on and on. And yeah. it's great to have a chance to really talk about the, the entire breadth of his career. Yeah, and you and I got to take a little uh, road trip to yep. have the conversation with Chris up to uh, Ventura County. I actually did the interview in the library of the Museum of Ventura County. Yep. That's an unusual venue <laughs> for us. We've never done an it's interview. First. We will, we've done some interviews in some weird spots, but uh, the museum actually um, had a Chris Hillman exhibit that they had going on, yep. and so they let us do the, the interview there. So, yeah, we're in a cavernous uh, research library with some loud air conditioners, so uh, that's why it might sound a little different than yep. our usual interviews, but, uh, but it was... It made me feel like we were doing something important. Oh, it lent a gravitas for sure to the entire yeah. proceeding. I thought. I think we were creating what they call um, archival material. Uh, I, yeah, and and stuff that I think will stand the test of time. Absolutely. One but, day uh, when they interview podcasters about amazing podcasts, you know, they'll podcraft be talking to us. Podcraft. Whatever, yeah, they can like talk it. to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, but no, it's great. And, and Chris is a great guy. Yeah, he was a great guy. Yeah, and we went to lunch with him afterwards. And, he and his wife, and uh, got to know them a little better. That was and, super uh, fun. Yeah, very great people. In fact, I'd say we go back and go up and do it, the whole thing again. Yeah, let's see if they want to just have lunch like three times a week. Let's do it. I'm in. <laughs> Part two.
Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Chris Hillman first came to songwriting prominence as a founding member of The Birds when he wrote or co-wrote several of the band's classic songs, including So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, Have You Seen Her Face, Time Between, Thoughts and Words, The Girl with No Name, Natural Harmony, Old John Robertson, and others. Departing The Birds following their landmark Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, Hillman teamed with Graham Parsons to launch the Flying Burrito Brothers. The pair penned a series of now-classic Americana standards for the band, including Sin City, Wheels, Christine's Tune, Juanita, and High Fashion Queen. Chris spent time in the group Manassas, where he co-wrote the charting single It Doesn't Matter with Stephen Stills, before releasing a handful of solo albums and collaborative projects with several other musicians, including Richie Furet, J.D. Souther, Gene Clark, and Roger McGuinn. Hillman found his greatest commercial success with the Desert Rose Band, which he founded with Herb Peterson and John Jorgensen. Chris penned a dozen of the group's charting singles, including the top ten hits Love Reunited, One Step Forward, Summer Wind, Start All Over Again, Story of Love, and I Still Believe in You, which reached number one on the Billboard Country Chart. The group was named Band of the Year three years in a row by the Academy of Country Music and earned multiple CMA Award nominations. Hillman is a country rock pioneer, a four-time Grammy nominee, and the recipient of the Americana Music Association's Lifetime Achievement Award. His songs have been recorded by Emmylou Harris, Sheryl Crow, Ron Wood, Tom Petty, Patti Smith, Beck, The Hollies, Roxette, Crowded House, Uncle Tupelo, Dan Fogelberg, Dwight Yoakam, Marty Stewart, Steve Earle, Nazareth, Black Oak, Arkansas, The Oak Ridge Boys, Allison Krauss, and others. Chris, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you, Scott. Well, as a songwriter, you have penned a half dozen top ten hits on the Billboard Country Chart. You've written singles on the rock charts with Stephen Stills and the Birds. You've created some of the early anthems of what's now known as Americana music with the Flying Burrito Brothers. Um, but you didn't really emerge as a songwriter until after you had been in a successful rock band for a little while. Um, and even though you didn't start out writing, I would like to briefly kind of go back to your early musical history, because I think those formative experiences, you know, obviously shaped who you would become as a songwriter in, in later years. Um, so tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and what kind of music you were absorbing in your teen years, you know, prior mm -hmm. to, to the birds thing. <clears throat> like most people my age, I was born in 1944. So growing up in the fifties, uh, and thank God my parents loved music and they, they had such a great uh, a collection of music around the house that was always being played on our hi-fi Count Basie and Ellington but the, and then the singers they'd have Sinatra and Peggy Lee and Ella Fitzgerald so it, it, I absorbed all of that and of course I was there when rock and roll really came shooting through uh, mm. 1955 to uh, Oh, 1959, and it was just unbelievable music. Little Richard, Fat Stump, and everything. We, we all know that, that thing. But uh, I didn't want to learn the guitar then, but I loved the music. And, uh, uh, and then along came folk music. So my early influences were what I heard around the house. But <clears throat> uh, when folk music came along, I really, really uh, gravitated to that and learning, wanting to learn the guitar and all that. So... My early influences were uh, a little bit of the Kingston Trio, more Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, uh, Lead Belly, of all people. I loved Lead Belly. Mm. I thought he was just fantastic. And then I heard Bluegrass, and that just turned my head around. And then I heard uh, Bill Monroe play the mandolin. And I went from learning the guitar in 1960, 61, to learning the mandolin, attempting to learn the mandolin, still trying to do it after 60 years. <laughs> but uh, that was my early influences. The first band I was in was, was the Scottsville Squirrel Barkers in <laughs> 1963. And I actually wrote a song because we did an album. We made this album in four hours and for Crown Records, and, and uh, I had an instrumental I wrote. So that, that's sort of my first song. But it was sort of just your standard uh, generic bluegrass instrumental, three-chord three uh, descending line thing, fast instrumental. What was the name of that? That was called Three Finger Breakdown. Nice. Because I'll, I think I was using three fingers. I don't know what. But uh, so uh, that album we made for Crown Records, we, we had to have public domain material. I didn't get any money off this song, but I put it on the album anyway, and knowing I wasn't going to get paid. So 
you, you grew up in Southern California. Yes. And, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize how much of a country music influence there was in oh. California in those days. Yeah. Well, it was huge. It was uh, uh, every family coming out from Oklahoma, be it from the Dust Bowl or just the Depression from the South, the Midwest, Southeast, brought that music with them. And they get out to the uh, agricultural area of California, really is, is uh, the middle of the, of the state, Fresno, ba uh, Modesto, Bakersfield. And they, their country music comes with them. And mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. I always thought, uh, in regards to Buck Owens, the way he sang uh, with Don um, Rich, they'd always loop their end of their phrase out. It was very much like a Norteño song, a Mexican mm -hmm. uh, song, a mariachi song. So there's the two uh, elements of country music <clears throat> coming in and, 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 and Mexican music. And wow. I'll say Mexican in general, mariachi, Norteño, uh, banda today, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was huge. I mean, so I'm a kid uh 1960 in high school and i'm watching from san diego i'm watching spade cooley on tv on saturday night cal's corral uh town hall party ranch party and these were all live country music shows i loved it i i don't know why my dad was, was i always talk about my dad going is he sure he's our son because he left on the doorstep but i mean they didn't didn't dislike it yeah and they were supportive and of course when i wanted to learn to play the guitar but no it's a huge huge uh, california country music was uh, its own entity mm -hmm. in a sense i mean yeah. nothing taking nothing from nashville at all yeah it was just different it was edgier and I had lots of discussions with Dwight Yoakam, and Dwight's very good on this. And he said it was the end of the continent. Huh. And it, huh. there was something really quite philosophical about that. You're at the end of the, of the line, and there's the ocean, and it's something. And so every strange person came out here. And, <laughs> but, uh, no, it was, I, I leaned towards more to the California country music, or Rose Maddox, the Maddox Brothers. And all the all the country guys uh, worked out here a lot. Lefty Frizzell was out here a lot. Of course, Johnny Cash lived uh, up the road from where I live in Ventura, uh, in uh, Casita Springs. Yeah. You know. Well, you you know you talked about the birds a bit, and we'll talk about the birds a lot. Um, but you you became the bassist for that band in 1965. How did that opportunity first come about? I just knew uh, I knew the fellow that was working with him, Jim Dixon, real well. I'd done a, some stuff with him, and he recorded the. Uh, Hillman album, which was the Golden State Boys, uh, was their our first name. I don't know why they called it the Hillman to this day. I don't know, but it was <laughs> Vern Gosden, Rex Gosden, and Don Parmley. It was really a good bluegrass band, mm. exceptionally good. Jim had recorded an album of us, and uh, uh, I Jim uh, had uh, known David Crosby, and so David had brought over Gene Clark and Roger McGuinn and introduced him to Jim and. They sang, for, and he, he was knocked out. Mm. It's right after the Beatles came out. He called me down to hear them one night when they were working at uh, World Pacific Studios about 2 in the morning. And I said, they sound great. And I had high standards. I had been with the Gosling brothers, who mm. were phenomenal singers. I said, they sound great. And I said, he said well, David's going to be the bass player, and we're going to hire a drummer. I said, okay, great. I go back to my gig at... Uh, for uh, in the in this horrible band I was in, <laughs> not to mention it. But um, <laughs> Jim called me about uh, three weeks later. He says David's not comfortable playing the bass. Can you play the bass? And I immediately knew where he was going. I said, Yeah, hmm. I can play the bass. I had never played the bass in my life <laughs> ever, ever even picked one up. Well, <laughs> so I said, Yeah, I can sure. handle that. And uh, I got hold of this horrible bass, and I didn't have an amp. I went down to World Pacific. And I didn't know them. I knew who they were. I knew who Roger and David and Gene were. But I didn't know them. I got to know them. And, and then there was a new guy, Mike Clark, was the drummer. And so there was one amp in the studio, and Roger and I plugged into it. And there we go. Michael was playing on cardboard boxes wow. and a cymbal. <laughs> That's how the birds started. It was like I thought for a minute the, when I first looked at it, I thought it was going to be a skiffle band. Right, you right. Know, <laughs> uh, you know, um, but uh, as it turned out, no, we... We got through it. We got some money. We got some equipment. We got hold of a killer song, Tambourine Man. We just did the right things, and yeah. we had some good direction. Um, and Derek Taylor came over after he had been the Beatles' publicist, and he left Brian Epstein and came over to, to America, and he took on the Beach Boys and the Birds. And we had mm. not proven anything yet. <laughs> 
but Derek was good, and he got right, got that. The minute we had Mr. Tambourine Man out as a single, he had it on the radio at KRLA with mm. Bob Eubanks. Uh, he oh, was yeah. the big DJ back then. Right. And Bob broke that rec- record. I got to hand it to him, and uh, it took off. It oh. just, who would have thought? I, I just recently learned that Miles Davis had a hand in you guys getting a deal. Miles which- Davis, uh, uh, Jim Dixon took a dub, a demo that we had done of Tambourine Man that we had replayed on at the studio. And he takes it over to this guy, Benny Shapiro. And Benny Shapiro owned a club called the Renaissance in on the Sunset Strip it was a jazz club at the time. And he, he, and he takes it over to Benny's house. He says, I'm, I'm working with these kids. What do you think of this? It's, it's rock, sort of rock. And, and Benny puts the tape on, and his daughter's upstairs. She's 13 years old. She hears it, runs down the stairs. Who is that, Daddy? Well, da, 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 da. Benny says, well, if she likes it, I'm sold. Wow. You know? <laughs> and he calls Miles Davis, who was a Columbia Records artist, and Miles did a big favor. We never met him. We never knew Miles Davis. And he called the head of Columbia Records in 19, late 64. Give these guys a break. They swing. They're good. Wow. And, and uh, we got a singles deal. Wow. So that's, that's how that happened. Amazing. Yeah. Incredible era. So yeah. there you have it. Yeah, I was, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. This is shaping up to be a great return on that $50 base investment. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but it paid off well. Oh, man. Well, the Birds' first three albums in, in 65 and 66 spawned classic songs like Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn and Eight Miles High. Um, and that was the era when the primary songwriters in the band were Gene Clark and, and Roger McGuinn mm-hmm. and David Crosby. So you had not quite yet emerged as a writer, but I understand that it was actually your idea to cover the country classic Satisfied Mind on the Turn, Turn, Turn album. And mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like you were introducing country elements into the birds even earlier maybe than, than people realize. Yeah, I, I did. I loved that song and I'd heard uh, Porter Wagner do it. He had a big hit with it and I heard someone else do it. And I just thought it would, it, it, lyrically it was great. And, and we did it. They, they didn't object and we, we did this version of Satisfied Mind. So we really were doing <clears throat> country songs back then on the second album on through till Sweetheart of the Rodeo in yeah. 1968. And then when I started writing songs, and it was 1967, of course the first song I wrote was a country song, which really was sort of a country rock song. And I don't know if I should take credit for that, but it, <laughs> it was. It was uh, just a little, little more emphasis on backbeat. It was like a bluegrass song with, with, with more backbeat. You know, and is that uh, time between? Yeah, time between. Clarence White played on it, so uh, we brought. I brought him because I knew Clarence from when I was a bluegrass guy, and Clarence was in the Kentucky Colonels, and he was such a phenomenal musician. But he had gone to Telecaster then. Hmm. He plugged in, and he was great. So perfect. Brought him in. To this day, uh, that solo it just knocks me over, and he's just plugged into the amp. No gadgets, no gimmicks, no pull string. He's just playing that solo. I can hear your voice at night I can read the words you write It's only love Through love and trust It's gonna work out fine The only pain I feel Is all this time between You and me You and me You had five songs on that Younger Than Yesterday album, and you said Time Between was the first one you'd actually written, mm-hmm. so you just kind of came out of the gate and said, I'm good at this. Well, <laughs> I didn't really. I just came home, and, uh, you know, of course, circumstances dictated. I had a content. I had a, a gal I was living with at the time, and she was English. She went back home to England, and we weren't, we weren't really a couple as much as really good friends, but I, I used her as the uh, motivation, yeah. uh, you know, of... of uh, uh, don't say you love me, don't say you care, you're so far away, blah, mm. blah, blah. It wasn't the greatest poetry in the world, but it was a good first effort. Mm. <laughs> and and, uh, and then uh, things just uh, having, uh, mind you, I had come out of uh, doing a session for Hugh Masekela, playing electric bass, and uh, it was so much fun because they were all jazz players, mm. and they were good people. And they, they, The gal that we did the demos on, Letta Ambulu, uh, and she, uh, she said, you're a cookie Chris. I mean, that was the greatest compliment. And here's this <laughs> wonderful uh, singer. 
and telling him that my bass playing worked for her, which yeah. is, and I wasn't a bass player. You're a session se. bass player, now. yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, I was nothing. So uh, I, that when I came home, I wrote "Time Between." Then I, over the next few days, I was writing songs. And huh. have you seen her face? The uh, changes to that song really, really came from working with Masakela. Okay. Mm. Yeah. And in fact, I used the piano player Cecil Bernard. A uh, young fellow from South Africa to play piano when we cut it. You can barely hear, but he's in there. Have you seen her face? Her eyes reflect the colors in the sky. A more familiar place to be swept into whenever she's close by. Makes me wonder why. Run by, don't turn back. Can't hide from that look in her But uh, I had been so shy up to that point, and then uh, Gene having left the band six, eight months earlier, and I was promoted to the front line as a singer. I wasn't a good singer. I could sing in tune and do parts, but uh, that all helped it happen. It just, it it opened up this door, and the cobwebs came off, and Roger was, we we had a rehearsal, and and he says to Crosby, he says, you know, uh, Chris has some songs he's been writing, and David's going, oh, really? And he <laughs> says, you better hear them. You better listen to these. And then uh, and he told somebody else, he says, you know, Chris was a real, uh, it took it took him a long time, but when he when he bloomed, he blossomed. It was mm. some really nice line. Like that. So yeah. Roger was going, wow, what did you, have you seen her face? One of the f- only songs Roger played six string electric on was ah. the solo. And I always thought he sounded like Dave Davies in the case. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. Uh, yeah, it just started coming. I don't know what happened. You know, well, one of the ones we didn't touch on, um, the lead track on the Younger Than Yesterday record was "So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star," which became a, a top forty pop single, and actually your first appearance on a Billboard chart as a as a songwriter. <laughs> Well, that again came from I think my experience with with working with Hugh and his players. Uh, it's it's sort of in that place and uh, uh, and Roger, uh, I, I called him. I said I got something interesting. I said, and he comes over and he says and he says, well, let's try this for the bridge. Well, the bridge da 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 is from a Miriam Makiba song and Miriam Akiba Roger had worked with and she was from South Africa right and uh, so we borrowed these changes for the bridge of the song and we wrote that song 20-30 minutes you know wow. and it was it was a parody and here we are what, what we're all of Roger was tw- 23 or 4 I was 21 <laughs> and we're already uh, old guys uh, been around the block a couple times but originally <laughs> well I always and I said it was about the monkeys but it wasn't about the guys it was about the, the process of how contrived it was that Hollywood as always takes this beautiful thing of hard days night and tr- trivializes it you know yeah um well, as a songwriter, you're all over the Bird's fifth album, The Notorious Bird Brothers, with writing credits on more than a half dozen songs. And I want to ask you specifically about Old John Robertson, which is one that you, you regularly still play today. Old John Robertson, he wore a Stetson hat. People everywhere would laugh behind his back. No one cared to take any time to find out what he was all about. He was a man uh, in the town I was grew up in, uh, Rancho Santa Fe, and uh, John Robertson uh, was just this wonderful guy that lived in town. He was uh, retired. He had been in the movie industry in, in uh, the 20s, had been a screenwriter, an actor, a director. He had actually, I didn't know this till about a week ago, that he had directed John Barrymore in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which wow. was a huge movie in the 1928 or 29. Yeah. And he did all these movies, and the last movie he did was a Shirley Temple talkie, talking <laughs> picture. Huh. But he was the sweetest guy, and he, he was total 
wore Jodfer's boots, Stetson hat, always a beautiful sport coat. He wrote it. He would. He he got the uh, kids into horseback riding in Rancho. I had a horse, but. Uh, he helped develop all that for, for the younger kids. And he uh, actually would ride his horse to town and get, get his mail. But he's just a sweet guy. And I um, thought of him and once again went to Roger. Because Roger and I always worked really well together. And we wrote John Robertson, you know. Uh, my last solo record came along with Tom, my petty. I, I thought about re- recording it again, but adding something more to it, a bridge. So mm-hmm. that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. New old John Robertson. Old John Robertson, he wore a Stetson hat People passing by would never look back Long white hair, bright blue eyes Shining through as if he knew And he always knew Children laughing, playing, didn't know his name They could tell when he was coming just the same Whoa. One of your co-writers on several of the songs on the Notorious Bird Brothers was David Crosby, of course, but um, there were tensions in the band, and he was gone by the time mm-hmm. that record was mm-hmm. released, which meant needed a new guy in the group to, to fill the spot. And that situation, of course, led to a musical relationship that would be relatively brief, but also really important in terms of your kind of finding a, a partner in crime who shared your vision for bringing country and rock music together and, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a fresh way. Um, tell us a bit about that in that transitional era. Oh, uh, Roger and I finished Notorious, and, and then we said we better rebuild this band. We don't have a band anymore. Mike was gone, David was gone, and we got hold of uh, my cousin to play drums, and he was okay. He wasn't great, but it was okay. And then I met Graham Parsons, and Graham had done this submarine band record, which didn't do much, but uh, Roger, <laughs> when we were on the road with uh, the Sweetheart Tour, I said, yeah, the International Submarine Band, and I said, they they dove, but they never resurfaced, <laughs> whatever that meant. But Graham was great. I mean, he was ambitious. He was, he was focused, and we shared this love of country music, and he knew. He knew the music. It was really good. So uh, the the writing partnership was great. I mean, yeah. we, we did some really wonderful songs together. Uh, we had him in the birds for six months. I didn't realize it was such a short uh, time for him. And yeah. then uh, shortly thereafter, we got back together. I left the birds, and we started the Flying Burrito Brothers in 1969. And that's when we wrote all these songs in the right. Burrito Brothers, Sin City, uh, Devil in Disguise and Juanita and all this stuff. Yeah. It's interesting to, to thinking about the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album because you know most of the songs on those were cover songs. A um, couple yes. of Graham originals. We, kn- we didn't write. Um, you know, Scott, we did not. McGuinn and I did not write anything on that album. Yeah. One Bird's album, we didn't didn't contribute songs. But right. Yeah. And it, but it, it feels like your fingerprints are all over it. Yeah. Because this is your your yeah, musical it is. past. It's the birds. And and the funny thing is is. Uh, although I've never been approached with this, but I always thought people might have thought we were trying to cross over, I mean, and become country music artists. We weren't. Mm-hmm. We were the birds, and we were going to make a country album, and it was still the birds. Yeah. Right? Um, well, you know, I mean, Graham Parsons has become such a... Mythical. A mythical icon. He has. You know? Yes, he has. Um, I, I, I'm going to tell you, you both, you guys. I mean, I loved Graham, uh, and then it, he he was focused on on pursuing other things than the music. Mm-hmm. And the funniest thing I I should have known when when we went to Europe was Graham and Roger and I and Doug Dillard was the birds huh. and Kevin the drummer. Right. And the Stones cut came to see us in London, and Mick and Keith invited. Roger and I uh, to go to Stonehenge to watch the sun come up. Here it was 1969. Right. It was. And uh, okay, well, then we'll pick you up at two in the morning and we'll drive to Stonehenge and <laughs> right. the hotel. I said, okay. So Graham goes with us and um, Mick was dating Marianne Faithful. I remember mm. she was with. So we go out and we do this. Right. And we get there, we park the cars, we're walking around and it's, uh, the sun's about to come. And Mick and Keith start walking and Graham starts running after them. And I look at Roger and I'll never forget this. I said, uh oh. He was enamored with that. Yeah. This was it. And that's it led to the next trip over when we were going to go to South Africa. And 
all the way up until the day we left, we thought everything was fine. The day we were going to leave, Graham says, I can't go down there. And he says, he turns into this, I can't go to South Africa because I grew up in the South with racism and all that. And I'm thinking, you little. (laughs) Roger and I made a commitment. Whether it was right or wrong, we did it. We went to South Africa. It was a nightmare. Right. I can't say Graham was right. Graham wanted to stay and hang out with the Stones. Yeah. Okay. yeah That's yeah. what happened. Yeah. So he was immediately let go. And then I should have known. But I, I, can't, I can't say it was wrong because I got back together with him a matter of two, three months and started the Breeder Brothers, which I enjoyed. When you guys were living together for part of that time as well, was creativity happening in the house? Just yeah. coming and going, oh, yeah, yeah. here's an idea. and yeah. Uh, he was asleep when I started Sin City, and I woke him up and we finished it. Um, but we had, once again, well, your, your main thing with songwriting is your motivation. Where's your motivation? Uh, and at that point in time, the chorus uh, on the 31st floor, a gold-plated door won't keep out the Lord's burning rain. Well, we had this manager. Graham had him, too, as, uh, in the submarine band. He had the same guy managing him, Larry Spector, and he was a thief. You know, he was a major thief. He really took Roger and David and I to the cleaners. And I think David Crosby led us into the abyss with that one. <laughs> but, um, uh, but he actually, Larry Spector managed Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper as they were completing the screenplay, the Easy, Easy Rider. Rider. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And he also managed Hugh Massacale. So it was a kind of an incestuous little situation. Oh, he really understood timing, too. There. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, but, but if he'd have played it a little straighter, he probably really would have, Larry Spector would have come out a little better. But anyway. So that's where, because that song, I, that's such a great song. But yeah. the imagery is, is it's almost like, it's like a Leuven Brothers song. But it's, it's got a, this it's kind a, of bonkers yeah, well, like imagery going on well, too. Well, we, uh, Parsons and I both uh, had a, a great understanding of the old uh, Baptist hymns. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it is. It's like a Leuven Brothers song. This whole town's filled with sin, it'll swallow you. And I, I love where we were going with that. And uh, yeah. we, were, we were sort of documenting the culture at the time. This old earthquake's gonna leave me in the poorhouse. It seems like this whole town's insane. On the 31st floor, This is the part Graham put in. I never could figure out, what are you talking about? And I told him that. I said, we've got our recruits in our green mohair suits. I'll say, recruits, Vietnam, okay. And the green mohair suits, I don't know where that's coming from. Please show your ID at the door. So that was the the, uh, insanity of Graham sometimes. It was a good insanity. He was funny. He was a funny man. Very, very funny. Yeah, yeah. As as Amy Lou says, Graham existed on a different plane when he was focused yeah he did wow. yeah he was a bright guy yeah yeah fun to fun to work with um what about wheels which is another kind of classic from that record I'm Graham bought a, uh, we were living together, he bought a BSA Lightning, which was really a single uh, cylinder, single uh, kickstart English motorcycle. And if you didn't know how to handle those things, they'd, they'd eat you up. It was hard to kick them over. And Graham was, you know, a slight man. He wasn't very powerful in that sense. But he <laughs> took that bike out, not the second day he had it, and put it down, came back, <laughs> rolled it back to the house. He's a cleaned up his leg, he cut his leg all up, and we wrote wheels. We've all got <laughs> wheels to take ourselves away. We've got the telephones to say what we can say. So it was really based on a motorcycle accident. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tell you one thing, and this, this is where Dwight, Dwight is such a sharp guy. He looks at me one night, he says, well, I'll tell you one thing, you can't be a country singer and have a trust fund. <laughs> and Graham had a $55,000 stipend coming in every single year, and that was wow. 69. That's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. yeah. 
So there wasn't that. that that's what killed him. Yeah. And he had potential. He mm -hmm. did have potential, but so did every other guy in L.A. at that particular juncture that mm -hmm. was a songwriter. Yeah. Jamie yeah. Souther was out there. Glenn Fry was out there. Yeah. Don Henley. And they all had it, but they were focused on their job. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah, they, and they, they pay starved. the bills. <laughs> yeah. And they, as all artists do, you starve. Yeah. You don't have any yeah. money. And uh, that really did hold yeah. him back. But, and he's get, got this money. He's got a cushion, a major cushion. So yeah. Anyway. Well, it's interesting because as a fan, you know, sort of looking from the outside, I think it's easy to for people to forget that, you know, we're talking about real people, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. we love the music, but we're talking about real people with with real lives. And the the way that Graham has become so mythologized and I yeah. think what he represents is important. I think the bringing yeah. together of country yeah. and rock is important, but the way he has become mythologized, it's just funny for me to sit here and think that the length of time that you were friends with Graham and collaborating with Graham was so short in compared to the number of years that I'm sure you've been asked to analyze and, and comment on Graham, who had he not died young and good looking, you know, you just sort of wonder how history, he, he had the know. potential. Yeah. And, uh, um, it's, it, if I had only done the flying Bruder brothers, there would be, we could analyze it to, to death, but yeah. it was, mm -hmm. it was just a couple of years out of yeah. my life. <laughs> right. Uh, I remember the, this fellow wrote this book on Graham. Well, actually he wrote it on the flying Bruder brothers, uh, John Einerson, and I, everybody thinks I wrote it. I didn't write that book. I edited him, and he huh. put my name on the cover. But yeah, I, I was going to say, I have that book, and yeah, your name's and I, on the cover. I, I was over his shoulder. I said, no, that's wrong. <laughs> right. Put, put right. the truth in. Right. And, and, and John gave me a good question one time when we were sitting there working, and he looks at me and says, well, why did you allow him to do that? And I said, I don't know. Huh. He was very hmm. charismatic, and mm -hmm. he, he was very, very charming. And I really loved the guy. And, right. and then it got to where he had stabbed all of us in the back so many times. I had, I said, you're fired. Mm -hmm. said, you can't fire me. I said, oh, yes, I can. You're fired. <laughs> you're out of here. Right. And he was gone. So yeah. and we yeah. did fine. Everybody did other things. Right, right. Well, and I think even as, you know, Graham has sort of become this shorthand central character for California country rock when it was really a much more nuanced mm -hmm. story with a lot of a lot of people. In some ways, the Eagles have become shorthand for the commercialization of, of California country rock. And I know Bernie Ledden was in the Brito Brothers. He left and and uh, and and you Eagles. know mm -hmm. joined the Eagles. Yeah. Um, and as Tom Petty says, every time the Eagles fly on their private jet <laughs> that Chris Hillman at least paid for the jet fuel. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on that in terms of this kind of thing that you really sort of started and then it does become this phenomenon and you see other people kind I, of i i uh, used to get upset when uh writer uh, somebody would write and graham's incredible song sin city i go i wrote half of that while he was unconscious <laughs> and my wife would always say would you like to trade places with him right now mm -hmm. you know and, and i said you know I'm beyond that now. It doesn't really matter to me. Yeah. Uh, I've done other things. I've done better things in that particular moment in my life. And it doesn't really matter what people write or do at this point. Tom, bless his heart, and Dwight have always talked me up over mm -hmm. the whole deal as, yeah. as far as, as over Graham and Marty Stewart and all that. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I'm not going to... You know, what are you going to get out of that? You know, uh, after Graham was let go from the band, you guys did one more Flying Burrito Brothers record. And uh, Rick Roberts came in mm -hmm. and kind of f filled that creative role with you. you. You guys did songs like Hand to Mouth, Just mm -hmm. Can't Be, Can't You Hear Me Calling, mm -hmm. All Alone. Mm -hmm. Switching to a new collaborator, did that change the way you approached your role in the songs? Or did you kind of just keep bringing the same same thing that yeah, you had it, it, it changed it a bit. You know, Rick was not as... Uh, well-versed in country music but mm. rick was a, a great harmony singer mm. so i'm i'm going to lead vocals and rick singing harmony is really a, quite a good blend and yes we, we wrote some interesting songs and they were a little different uh but they were executed better the thing about the burritos that i i i don't know why and this is one i let get away we i come off playing on uh, songs like rock and roll star and eight miles high in the studio and the burritos were we were so sloppy we were just yeah, and we never got it together in, uh, in in the execution of the song. We wrote good songs. If you took all of the country rock groups then, 
late 60s, early 70s at Poco, Flying Burrito Brothers, this and that. Dillard and Clark, they did some good stuff. But the burritos had great songs. Mm. They were mm. really good songs, and uh, as did Dillard and Clark. But yeah. No, Rick was just a different uh, part of the, of the yeah. recipe. Worked out. Well, by 72, you'd left the Burrito Brothers, mm-hmm. and we're back on the Billboard charts. Then with Stephen Still's recording of It Doesn't mm-hmm. Matter, and that's a song the two of you co-wrote. funny that song um i wrote one version with rick and i wrote another version with steven <laughs> and most of the time you'll see rick's name on it as a credit it should be there all the time uh the, the lyrics with steven were a little deeper <laughs> than the ones we did together with rick and i and uh, that's my fault probably but I, it wasn't quite as uh it was a little more uh, personal on the uh, monastic version <laughs> yeah that's all well, after a brief uh, reunion of the original Birds lineup for kind of a one-off uh, album on Asylum in 73, you made two records with J.D. Souther and Richie mm-hmm. Furey as the mm-hmm. Souther Hillman Furey Band. Um, and when you look at the songwriting credits on those two records, you guys weren't collaborating on the mm-hmm. songs. You were sort of each mm-hmm. bringing your own material to the table. How, did, how do you kind of negotiate that <laughs> process in terms of choosing songs when you got three well, Three that was the guys. whole thing with that band. It was never, uh, it was never allowed to nurture, to develop, and mm. it was three singer-songwriters with a backing band. Yeah. So we never collaborated. Mm. JD was very prolific, and it was his first outing as a as a recording artist. Richie, of course, had experience. I had experience, and, uh, and those that band was not at all my favorite mm. outing. I love the guys in it. Right. And it was a good band, but it, musically the songs were just not there. Yeah. And that's uh, the funniest thing. Uh, we had actually had a meeting about five years ago about, uh, I don't know if J.D. came up with the idea, we, went, we ought to reform and, and, and open for Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I went, what? And he <laughs> says, well, there's, there's deals on the table. I said, deals on the table? That's out of the uh, music business uh, lexicon. <laughs> deals on the table. I said, what kind of deals? And this is the conversation. <laughs> I said, what songs are you going to do? Well, we'll just work up. I said, have you listened to the albums, the two albums we did? Do you want to listen to those? I went home and listened to them. I went, uh-uh. <laughs> it's, it wasn't that good. And I right. said, we're not going to get that kind of money. What are you talking anyway. I didn't right. say it like that, but I said, and it just didn't happen anyway. It just yeah. f- it fell away. But it wasn't. It was really sort of strange at that right. time. Not my favorite band. Have never done any of those songs Interesting. ever on wow. stage. Wow. JD wrote a couple good ballads, and uh, Richie had one good one. We actually yeah. got on the charts with that uh, one. Richie's song, I think, it was uh, yeah. "Fallen in Love." Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't until 1976. Um, which kind of blows my mind that the birds started in 65. Between 65 and 76, it seems like you've already done four lifetimes worth of stuff. <laughs> yeah, We're talking no about kidding. one decade. Yeah. But um, in 76, you made your first solo album, Slipping Away. Mm-hmm. And the opening track, uh, Step On Out, later became the title track of an Oak Ridge Boys album That's in the right. mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time that that happened was about the same time that you appeared as a, as a solo artist on the country chart with a couple songs from the Desert Rose album. So we sort of see like here in the mid eighties, like here's the Oak Ridge boys, you know, doing your song. Here's, you know, running the roadblocks is, is on the country charts. Um, considering how California country rock had kind of been viewed by the Nashville establishment in the early days, did it surprise you to suddenly find the commercial country music world going, yay, Chris Hillman? It did, but it didn't really surprise me until we had uh, the first top 10 single in Desert Rose, which was Love Reunited. Mm-hmm. And that was our second single we ever did. But prior to that, so the Oak Ridge Boys, out of nowhere, pick up Step On Out yeah. and cut it. And 
I was just flabbergasted. I went, wow. You know, and they were really good guys, and they, they were wonderful guys. They were so sweet. And, uh, uh, and after that, yeah, uh, I did a solo album. Then I did two for Sugar Hill. I think mm-hmm. you're thinking Morning Sky and then... Uh, Desert Rose. Desert Rose. Yeah. Morning Sky was an acoustic sort of bluegrass type record, and Desert Rose was an electric album, which mm-hmm. I had great players. I had all of uh, Elvis's guys. I had Ronnie Tutt on drums and Jerry Sheff and James Burton and all that. Wow. I'll leave a Herb wow. and yeah. You know, so it was a good record. That was the that was the the, the beginnings of Desert Rose Band. Yeah. So so to speak. Yeah. And and forming that Desert Rose Band, I mean, you mentioned Love Reunited. That took you in a major commercial country success. That was where it did it. Uh, that's where uh, when I got the phone call because I'd we had put a single out, uh, Ashes of Love. Mm-hmm. Johnny and Jack had a big hit with it in the late fifties, and it got into the teens. I'm going, ah, okay, you know. I just, and then uh, I started getting phone calls. We put the next single out, Love United, and it starts climbing the charts. And I'd get a call. Well, it's going to be number 14 next week with a bullet. Okay. And then I get the call. I think we have a top 10 single. I said, really? And then it continued to climb. It got to number three, Billboard. Wow. And I said, this, I told Connie, my wife, I said, this isn't supposed to happen. <laughs> this is not supposed to happen. I'm, I'm the... Uh, leader of the band and I wrote the song and I'm singing lead I said that's just not my <laughs> my uh, history yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think my wife said well I think you've gotten to the point now you've you've <laughs> uh, you've, you've assumed the captain of the, of the <laughs> ship you were a first mate but now whatever don't walk away don't run from yourself it's not her for somebody else it's not a ring I always thought the best thing about the Desert Rose Band, we were accepted for who we were, not what we were, mm. what, what we had been. Nobody yeah. connected the dots. Yeah. You know, only a few people knew the birds and... But uh, it was yeah. a good experience. That was the longest band I'd ever been in, uh, yeah. eight years. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of songwriting. And of course, I at that point had, had really liked working with uh, with an, another person. Steve Hill was the guy, and I've I've been still working with Steve Hill after mm-hmm. 25, 28 years. Uh, and he he was great to write with. Yeah, yeah I was going to say of the of the six top 10 country hits that you wrote for desert rose band five of them were songs that you and and steve wrote together correct summer wind start all over again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i still believe in you which went to number one beautiful liars heartless survivors where are you taking me now smooth operator do it all later when will you down. I still believe in you now somehow. I still believe in you now. And when thinking about a, a co-writer, I mean, he's a guy that you, you wrote those songs with, but you're s- still, your, your more recent stuff, Scott, you, you've been writing with him ever since then. Correct. Um, talk a little bit about how you guys first kind of formed a partnership and what it is about him as a collaborator that really works for you. He lived in Ventura uh, with his family, and Al Perkins, who I originally met, he was Sneaky Pete Kleinow's replacement on steel guitar in the Britos. And Al, I've known him, she, a long time, almost 50 years. Uh, and Al, uh, Al was in the Britos with me. He went to uh, Manassas with me, and he went to Souther Hillman Fure with me. <laughs> And then Al and I had a group, uh, acoustic band, in the early 80s. But anyway, Al introduced Steve and I. And he thought there was something really special there, because he knew Steve from Texas. They're both old Texas boys. And the first day I met Steve was uh, here in Ventura. And uh, we sat down and started playing, and we wrote that Love Reunited. First song we wrote. And continued on from there. Uh, He's easy to work with, and he's he's, uh, honest. Hmm. And... There'll be times uh, we'd be riding and I'd come out with a lion and he'd look at me and he'd go like this. 
I said, that bad? He went, uh-huh. <laughs> That's the kind of guy you want to write with. Right. You know, that, and, and I did the same to him. I yeah. said, I don't know. That's a throwaway line. There. And, and for our listeners, by it. the way, Chris just made a, like, skeet shooting, talking <laughs> oh, a I'm gun sorry. to shoot the idea out of the air. <laughs> That's <laughs> a volatile nature of mine. Gun-toting dog. Anyway, so, yeah, he's the ideal co-writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he expresses himself. He's he's smart. He's honest. He's he's great. I, I, I'm very cl- close friends to this day with him. Yeah. After something like 16 singles on the Billboard Country Chart, Desert Rose Band broke up. What what leads to ending uh, a band at that point? Okay. Well, this is one a rarity where it was not out of any kind of uh, in in band fighting. Mm. We all liked each other a lot. What happened was, <clears throat> I think when Garth Brooks came out, with all due respect to him. The whole uh, radio chart changed because at that particular time when Desert Rose was on the radio and Kathy Matea and, uh, oh gosh, there's some other bands that were out there then. It was a real singer-songwriter, which it's always been down there, but it was far more prevalent on the radio. But Garth came along and changed the whole thing. So that's what happened. And um, we, we had played like, okay, the Ventura Fair we played the main stage two years in a row, and all of a sudden, uh, the last couple singles weren't charting like they used to, and maybe they weren't good enough. I don't know what happened. I think they were good enough songs, but they just didn't quite. Somehow we got swept into, a lot of other groups did too, yeah. with this changeover, yeah. and uh, early 90s. So all of a sudden, uh, we weren't playing the main stages at the fairs. And that's where you work as a country act. You work at the mm-hmm. main stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were working on the what I call the Budweiser stage, where you did two, <laughs> three shows a day, not one. <laughs> right. But anyway, and I, I had been gone so long. I'd been on the road so much. It was affecting my family. I was missing my children's birthdays. And I, had, I was worn out. And I said, it's time to, it's time to lay this down for yeah. a while. And interestingly enough, we stopped it, and then... We remained good friends, and we always worked together in various entities, all the guys in the band. And I made a couple, excuse me, a couple records using Bill Bryson and Herb and J.D. Maness and John George is the same band, mm-hmm. and Steve mm-hmm. Duncan. So I, it, wouldn't, it wasn't the Desert Rose, it was a Chris Hillman solo record, but I'd have those guys on it because yeah. I knew them, I knew what they did. They were great musicians. You yeah. know? So it was the most gentlest of uh, breakups. Yeah. 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 I mean, John Jorgensen's an okay musician, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have enough, he doesn't play enough notes. Totally. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you talk about that, that pre-Garth Brooks uh, era in Nashville. Uh, I think Steve Earle calls that the great credibility scare of the late 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's right, though. You know. I'm thinking of other things. That, well, Steve Earle was out then, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah Dwight and... He, and, and Dwight uh, and, and yeah. Steve Earle had that wonderful... Uh, Guitar Town, yeah, great, yeah. great stuff. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, Nashville is getting, getting really good there. I mean, yeah. with the music coming out of Nashville, God knows what it is now. We don't even need to go there, but <laughs> right, yeah, know. we should not go there. <laughs> yeah. um, well, since the end of the Desert Rose Band, you've released a number of albums, um, uh, some solo, some credited to you and and Herb, Herb Peterson, yeah. and and like you say, a lot of the same guys. We're seeing a lot of the same cast of characters, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. that were part of that group. But um, I want to ask about the other side record uh, from 2005, oh, okay. which is. You know, it's it's heavy on original compositions with a lot of spiritual themes, mm-hmm. um, and and I don't know the the details, but um, from what I understand, you had a, a pretty powerful spiritual conversion experience at at some point, and I'd be curious to to hear how kind of the change in your spiritual perspective maybe impacted the way that you see the world and and even approach songwriting. Well, I didn't ever set out to do gospel songs, never did, and, but we'd always inject some kind of a positive thing in there uh, when we worked, Steve and I, and Steve's a, a Christian. Uh, yes, I did, uh, I, w- I became a Christian, and I still am, uh, but uh, I didn't, it didn't necessarily change it as much. I was doing the same thing, but yeah, there's just these slight uh, uh, subtleties that are in the songs now that, you know, I, I couldn't see writing anything truly negative, and it's funny. And you, as you get older, um, and you're you're I'm not writing at this moment, but I mean when you do write, you have to create a, a, a short story, mm-hmm. you know, a scenario. You really have to do that. Uh, 
But yeah, it's like okay, uh, we'll get we'll get to talking about Biden my time, mm-hmm. and and uh, there's a song on Biden my time called "Given All I Can See." Okay, mm-hmm. and it, it really has some interesting uh, Christian things in that. Mm-hmm. Given all I can see, given all I can feel, given all that's before me, it seems so unreal. Uh, so that really did, I think, land there more than some of the other songs. Uh, but yeah, it changed it a bit. It mm-hmm. did. Yeah. 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 You know, you, you mentioned that Biden My Time record, and that was um, released, it was produced by Tom Petty mm-hmm. and released in 2017, not long before he passed. That's right, right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's some original songs, some covers. Um, did you guys kind of go in together and selecting those songs? Um, I, I, what was that process like in terms of um, curating? Tom and never creating? was, uh, he never told me what to do. He, he guided me. He was great. He was, you know, I mean, we, we were goofing around one day, and, and Herb and I were singing um, Walk Right Back. To, Walk right back to me this minute. Bring your love to me, don't. And Tom's listening in the booth. He goes, what are you doing? I said, we're goofing around. Said, Let's cut it. I said, really? <laughs> and we cut it. We stopped everything. We, not, we cut Walk Right Back. That's awesome. John Jorgensen, by the way, does one of the greatest solos on that song. Yeah. Just out. And Tom... Tom said to John, he says, hey, he says, why don't you, uh, why don't you just play this, just go for the solo. So here's why I love working with Tom. We'd do those tracks, I'd be set up to sing. I didn't, have, I didn't overdub vocals. Hmm. A couple things I, I overdubbed. Huh. But most, 90% of the time, I'm singing live to the band. And I love that's it. really where you're getting, you, it, I never like putting earphones on and having to get back into the, yeah. yeah. So he did that with John, he said, just play the solo. It was that's, great. That's awesome. uh, he was a, a great producer. Um, loves music, and I mean, it just—it was so funny. I didn't want, and you know the story. I didn't want to make a record, but uh, uh, we did, and it, it came out. It went, went by so fast, and it was such a joy to work with him. He loves all kinds of music. When I showed, he said, "Play me a couple songs," and I was unprepared. <laughs> I'm going, "Oh my god!" And he says, "Okay, great. Oh, it's a folk album." I went, "I don't know." <laughs> I don't know, Tom, whether we're going to plug in on this or this. It's okay. Well, we'll, we'll uh, no, the best line is, he said, what do we got to work with? I said, well, Tom, this is on Rounder Records. We've got 30 grand. He said, well, that's a challenge. <laughs> and he says, not a problem. We'll go down to my studio and cut the tracks. And, and it was great. And we did cut um, this song Roger and I wrote way back in 1979, which was uh, Here She Comes Again. And, and the Heartbreakers are on that song. That was fun. Here she comes again. always wanted to cut that song because it it sounded so much like an early birds beatles 65 1965 rock yeah. song yeah. yeah yeah so we got to do that but i all in all i you know of course I, i've never done an album where i didn't say gee i wish i'd have done that different of course sure. there's the things i wish i'd have done different and, and when tom passed away we were in nashville it was just devastating i, mm. I was so upset with that yeah uh, and uh it was a tough year yeah tough yeah. year yeah, for sure uh, but an amazing human being yeah, yeah, so well known and still somehow I I think still underappreciated, to some degree. But his talk about accessible songs and yeah. what he did, man, the Wilburys, come on, that yeah. was fantastic <laughs> stuff. Yeah. yeah, incredible. Well, last question. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is one that uh, people always have a hard time answering. But if you were to create a time capsule that's going to be open two hundred years from now. And you can put one Chris Hillman song in there for the world to, to know you by 200 years from today, whether it be a, a very familiar, well-known song or, or a super deep cut. Is there a song that for you, one that you've written that you just kind of say, man, this is, this is, I just love this one. That's a tough question. I, 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 I there's a couple of my felt, I, I hit the mark. I mean, if you, if you, if you, if you write a 60 songs and one of them's uh, white Christmas, <laughs> That's all you need, right? I mean, right. 
I'm, I'm quite partial to, believe it or not, I was talking about Love Reunited. I always do that song on mm. stage. I don't know why. And mm. of course I like Time Between. That was the first one I ever did. Uh, and Have You Seen Her Face? But Have You Seen Her Face is interesting because it's sort of uh, boy, girl, teen lyric. You know? Yeah. Uh, but I'm still trying with that song, Have You Seen Her Face? I know we're off subject, but Have You Seen Her Face? I said, there's got to be a cosmetics firm out there that will use this song, <laughs> right? <laughs> really right. a sellout. But I would think either Love Reunited or Time Between, especially yeah. the Time Between with Clarence White on it. But, yeah, that's either one of those songs. Yeah, you know? nice, nice. Well, Chris, thank you for uh, spending some time with us today. This has been My great. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.